Oh, the power of that. That could, that, could, <laughs> that could get addictive. <laughs> anyway, thank you all for being here. I had in my notes to introduce myself, but hopefully, with summer school being summer school, you've all got to know me by now, or you've at least seen me around. So I might skip that if you want to find out anything more about me after this. Um, you're welcome to come up and talk to me afterwards if you're accurate. <laughs> Let us proceed with our chalice lighting. Let people worship with their eyes and ears and fingertips. Let people learn to love the world with their heart, mind and body. Let people worship with the opening of all the windows of their being, with the full outstretching of their spirits. Let people learn to worship. And let people learn to love. Amen. Amen. To gather us today, um, I'm going to invite you to do something that for many of you will be a bit new. Um, sorry for not giving you a relaxing start to your morning, but who knows. <laughs> I thought it might be a good way to start by doing some contemplation in the form of centering prayer. Now, I'm aware I don't have much time, um, so, in the best traditions of that classic BBC sitcom, Hello, Hello, I'm only going to say this once. <laughs> Firstly, I'm going to ask you now to think about one word that most captures the divine for you. It helps if it's short, but other than that, there are no restrictions. It could be God, love, um, I personally use Yahweh. Um, for this, but you choose a word that you're comfortable with. And this is going to be your sacred word. Now, in a moment, not yet, <laughs> I'll invite you to sit comfortably and remember how you are sitting. Uh, while, I'm, while I'm about to do this, because after that, um, I'm going to invite you to stand. <coughs> I wish to make it clear that this part is very optional, very much optional. Um, then I'll say some things that might help draw your attention to the, to the presence of the divine in the world around us. Okay. Have you decided on your word? Because after you had your presence drawn to the divine around the world, hopefully, you'll be able to sit down, relax, and start to allow yourself to be with the divine. If you feel your mind beginning to wander, just silently say that word to yourself. There's no need to use the word like a mantra and repeat it constantly. Just use it when you need to, to draw yourself back and away from distractions. You ready to go? 
So sit, just feel how you're resting in the chair. If you want to change anything, go for it. Just allow yourself to get comfortable and just allow yourself to remember that position if you want to stand. I invite you now to stand. Let us start with ourselves. How are you feeling in yourself? What is your energy like this morning? What do you feel is working within you to sustain you today? Let us now move out of ourselves and let us go deeper, literally, to the very rock beneath our feet. It was laid down here over 300 million years ago by a mighty ocean. Some of that stone is visible around here in the countryside. It looks timeless, but it is constantly changing. Countless freeze four cycles are eroding these outcrops away. What was once hard and foreboding is now fine and flows freely through our fingers. Where is God within this change and movement? Let us now consider the animal life around here. From the sheep in the fields to a spider nestling in a crack in a dry stone wall. Consider them in the creation of which we are all a part. You may now sit for a time of silence.
Amen. Now, I wanted to squeeze this in today because it's a hybrid of two different prayer techniques. I personally really recommend reminding yourself of where you stand in creation and in relation to God when you pray just before. It always seems to get me into the right frame of mind. Try it and see if it works for you. Contemplation using the sacred word is the basis of um, most Christian contemplation I've encountered. Um, And I really wanted to include a little of this merely as an invitation. See if you can get to the point of being able to do that for an hour each day. It's not easy, but if you can do it for an hour each day, for about a year or so, then, and I promise I'm not making this up, if you get your brain scanned, it will show similarities with the brains of those who use placebin containing mushrooms. <laughs> Another way to trip is story. It's much more appropriate for you lot. (laughs) This story is very special to me. It's the opening chapter of this. It might be familiar to a lot of people's childhood. It's it's The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster. Now... I have it on fairly good authority (laughs) that this very book, this very volume I have here, um, my granddad, who I sadly never met, uh, used this to read to my dad as a child. And my dad used this very book to read this story to me. So it's an absolute privilege to share it with you. There once was a boy named Milo who didn't know what to do with himself. Not just sometimes, but always. When he was at school, he longed to be out. And when he was out, he longed to be in. On the way, he thought about coming home. And coming home, he thought about going. Wherever he was, he wished he was somewhere else. And when he got there, he wondered why he'd bothered. (laughs) Nothing really interested him. Least of all, the things that should have. It seems to me that almost everything is a waste of time. He remarked one day as he walked dejectedly home from school. I can't see the point in learning to solve useless problems or subtracting turnips from turnips or knowing where Ethiopia is or how to spell February. (laughs) And, since no one bothered to explain otherwise, he regarded seeking knowledge as the greatest waste of time of all. 
As he and his unhappy thoughts hurried along, for while he was never anxious to be where he was going, he liked to get there as quickly <coughs> as possible. It seemed a great wonder that the world, which was so large, could sometimes feel so small and empty. And worst of all, he continued sadly, there's nothing for me to do, nowhere I care to go, and hardly anything worth seeing. He punctuated this last thought with such a deep sigh that a house sparrow nearby stopped singing and rushed home to be with his family. <laughs> Without stopping or looking up, he rushed past the buildings and busy shops that lined the street and in a few minutes reached home, dashed through the hall, hopped into the lift. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and off again. Opened the door of the flat, rushed into his room, flopped dejectedly into a chair and grumbled softly, another long afternoon. He looked glumly at all the things that he owned, the books that were too much trouble to read, the tools he'd never learned to use, the small electric car he hadn't driven for months, or was it years? And the hundreds of other games and toys and bats and balls and bits and pieces of scattered around him. And then on the far side of the room, he noticed something he hadn't ever seen before. Who could possibly have left such an enormous package and such a strange one, for it was not quite square and definitely not round. And for its size, it was larger than almost any other big package of smaller dimension he'd ever seen. <laughs> Attached to one side was a bright blue envelope, which said simply, For Milo, who has plenty of time. Of course, if you've ever received a surprise package, you can imagine how puzzled and excited Milo was. And if you've never received one, pay close attention, because someday you might. <laughs> I don't think it's my birthday, he puzzled. And Christmas must be months away. And I haven't been outstandingly good, or even good at all. He had to admit this, even to himself. Probably I won't like it anyway, but since I don't know where it came from, I can't possibly send it back. He thought about it for quite a while and then opened the envelope, just to be polite. One genuine turnpike toll booth, it stated, and then went on. Easily assembled at home and for use by those who have never travelled to lands beyond. Beyond what? thought Milo, as he continued to read. The package contains the following items. One, genuine turnpike toll booth to be erected according to directions. 
three precautionary signs to be used in a precautionary fashion. <laughs> Assorted coins for use in paying tolls. One map up to date and carefully drawn by master cartographers depicting natural and man-made features. One book of rules and traffic regulations which may not be bent or broken. And in smaller letters at the bottom, it concluded, Results are not guaranteed, but if not perfectly satisfied, your wasted time will be refunded. <laughs> Following the directions, which told him to cut, lift here, and then fold back all around, he soon had the toll booth unpacked and set upon its stand. He fitted the windows in place and attached the roof, which extended out beyond the sides, and fastened on the coin box. It was very much like the toll booths he'd seen on family trips, except of course it was much smaller and purple. What a strange present, he thought to himself. The least they could have done was to send a motorway with it, <laughs> for it's terribly impractical without one. But since at the time there was nothing else he wanted to play with, he set up the three signs. Slow down, approaching Tolbooth. Please have your fare ready. Have your destination in mind. And slowly unfolded the map. As the announcement stated, it was a beautiful map in many colours, showing principal roads, rivers and seas, towns and cities, mountains and valleys, intersections and detours, and sites of outstanding interest, both beautiful and historic. The only trouble was that Milo had never heard of any of the places indicated, and even the names sounded most peculiar. I don't think there really is such a country. He concluded after studying it carefully. Well, it doesn't matter anyway. And he closed his eyes and poked a finger at the map. Dictionopolis, read Milo slowly when he saw what his finger had chosen. Oh well, I might as well go there as anywhere. He walked across the room and dusted the car carefully. Then, taking the map and rule book with him, he hopped in and, for lack of anything better to do, drove swiftly up to the toll booth. As he deposited his coin and rolled past, he remarked wistfully, I hope this is an interesting game. Otherwise, this afternoon will be so terribly dull. What do you think happens to him? For you to find out as you wish, I guess. <laughs> as we, I think we say goodbye to you during this hymn. <laughs> Let us join together to sing hymn number 146, 146, Speaking Truth in Love. That's 146.
please be seated. I wish to talk today about the material world and about the wide school of philosophical Philosophical thought. God, it's going to be a long one if you can't hear that one. Right? Philosophical thought that gives the world primary importance. Materialism. I invite you to note before we go any further that when I mention materialism in this talk, I'm not referring to the materialism that has become um, the most common meaning of the word, uh, sort of vulgar consumerism. Um, at least I'm not referring to that unless otherwise stated. <laughs> oh, and there will be a vulgar materialist consumerist musical treat at the end though. Um, think of it as a kind of uh, Scooby snack in the form of a musical offering um, that you'll receive in exchange for your most kind attention. <laughs> Speaking of music, um, I started our time of worship this morning with some music. Um, did anybody hear it? Did you like it? <laughs> yes. um, that music, like most things, especially artistic things, uh, was of some philosophical interest, but more on that later. It's very tempting to start a talk in front of a captive audience with a, complete, with a completely unjustified and irrelevant and lengthy autobiography. Um, I will not do this um, because my autobiography to start this talk will be both justified and relevant. <laughs> um, but also, thankfully, it will be short. Um, after all, I'm only 25. Um, after all, uh, we at Summer School are operating with the guide of this very well thought out theme. Um, which I'll draw your attention back to. Theology in the flesh, how might our embodied experience shape our answers to life's ultimate questions? Part of having an experience um, means to be embodied in a particular history. Um, to paraphrase one very smart German philosopher, um, people make their own history, but not necessarily in conditions of their own choosing. Part of my conditions um, is that I have Asperger's Syndrome. Um, if you know what this is, um, you'll find it completely understandable that some people just find me totally insufferable. <laughs> However, these people do not know how lucky they are that they did not, in, that, in fact, know me as a child. <laughs> Shortly after my diagnosis, an educational psychologist told my parents that most children of Asperger's have one specialist subject that they bore people to death with. <laughs> However, Robin is slightly different in that he has multiple specialist subjects <laughs> and has the amazing ability to bore people to death with any one of them. <laughs> Hopefully, I mean, at least for your sake, I've improved since. <laughs> One of those subjects was politics, 
Um, how could it not be? Um, my dad was a political journalist for a small radical magazine and the highlight of my year as a small child was going to Labour Party conference with my dad. <laughs> when I was um, about seven, um, I heard Nelson Mandela speak at conference in Brighton. Um, it was 2001, I think. Um, and I spent the next few days excitedly telling my fellow primary school students about this amazing experience um, and reacted with sheer bemusement um, when they didn't seem to care or even know who he was. <laughs> I grew up in a house where Descapitel and the selected works of Lenin featured heavily on the bookshelves. My dad was a firm atheist and I think so is my mum. However, we lived in a small uh, rural Sussex village, so naturally when the editor of the parish newsletter went around to our house uh, to ask when, in fact, I would be being christened, um, <laughs> my parents decided to keep the peace and set a date. Later, my parents decided that my sister and I should be subjected to uh, a more of a variety of views on religion. Um, so they allowed my grandparents to take us to Sunday school at their fairly conservative evangelical fellowship. I certainly have a few stories about that. Um, and I swiftly became the world's youngest Dawkinsite militant atheist. Um, actually, less because of the evangelicals, but more because I attended the only local primary school, which was a Church of England school. Um, the teachers there like to maintain a certain amount of order um, and seem to think that uh, God and Jesus were on their side in this. Uh, the same Jesus who flipped over tables in the temple? These religious people must be deluded and stupid. <laughs> this atheism, um, when I grew out of thinking that religious people were simply deluded and stupid, turned into a kind of humanism. Um, but that didn't sit quite right with me either. Despite not believing in God, I always used to take prayers in my secondary school assemblies very seriously, um, sometimes facing mockery from my peers for doing so. Didn't matter though, I needed religion and after searching I found Unitarianism and felt immediately at home. Unfortunately, from this point on, this is where my sort of spiritual development becomes slightly tainted by association with internal denominational politics. Um, however, uh, this talk is embodied in my current convictions, and I believe it is best presented to you without you having to double guess what those convictions are. I joined my first Unitarian church as a humanist, um, but still not quite the most tolerant one. My first act in a church committee embarrasses me greatly now. Um, it was to argue, uh, successfully in fact, and as if won people over to vote my way, that our chapel should not affiliate to the Progressive Christianity Network because mentioning Christian would be too off-putting to newcomers. <laughs> I later went through a stage of dropping the humanist adjective to just be a plain Unitarian. Then more recently I started to use Christian as an adjective um, and what follows is probably somewhat of a coming out moment. Uh, 
Um, this talk is coming from the perspective of somebody who is pleased to think of himself as a free Christian, though of course still proudly committed to the Unitarian cause. Now, I'm aware that I've missed out um, my reasoning for going through this process of change. Um, however, time is short, um, and if you want to grill me on any part of that, um, or if you want to see me being held over the fire by those doing the grilling, um, <laughs> uh, you can, I believe, 4.45 um, in the lounge. Um, my politics has gone through less of a change. Uh, I won't get party political, especially on this platform, um, but um, although, my sis although my socialism may have got more Christian recently, um, if anything, it's got more radical than my dad's. In a way, he should have seen this coming. On the landing of our old family home, there was a picture of a Edward Bowen Jones engraving. Um, that used to help illustrate William Morris's book, uh, A Dream of John Ball. The image depicts a biblical scene that the radical reverend John Ball invoked as he preached to a large but ragtag army of peasants before they stormed the city of London during what became known as the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. The image shows Adam and Eve surrounded by their children after they'd been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. <coughs> Adam is shown digging, and Eve is shown spinning thread by hand. The image is captioned with a whine from John Ball's sermon. When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? When I was a baby, my dad, probably lacking any better ideas of what to do with me, um, used to pick me up in front of this picture and bounced me up and down to these words when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman. <laughs> the message of these words was clear to the peasants and has become uh, gradually even clearer to me. God did not create people so that, so that some could be rich while others have nothing. Thus, true Christianity, and I would argue true religion, has to address poverty, inequality, and suffering at a systemic level. One of the reasons why John Ball was considered a radical in his day, um, he was even banned from preaching uh, before the revolt, was because he chose to address the material needs of those around him, rather than just focusing on otherworldly spiritual salvation. In many circles, this would make him a radical today, too. There seems to be a general opinion shared by all kinds of people that religion should just be about idealism, whereas politics should stick to just the material concerns of the present day. I hope this talk begins to challenge this for some people. What is materialism? How did it come about? As a way of seeing the world, it is really old. So old that if I was going to go into it now, this would turn into a history of philosophy lecture and be a little dry even for me. 
For now, um, it will suffice to say about the origins of materialism in recent philosophy that it can be traced back to the Greek school of atomism. Among the atomists, uh, named after their view that the world was composed of atoms, was Epicurus. Epicurus um, lived from uh, 341 to 270 BC and as a brief aside, we've heard a bit about him yesterday, as a brief aside, unlike many of his contemporary philosophers, he allowed women to join his school. To skip a lot of time, uh, this tradition continued all the way through Western philosophy and to the dawn of enlightenment. Um, and here we get the first links with Unitarianism. I see Spinoza as one of the first materialists of the early modern period. Uh, there's some debate about this um, as to whether Spinoza um, was actually a pantheist or a panentheist or an atheist. Uh, Joseph Priestley, one of the founders of English Unitarianism, um, saw Spinoza firmly as the latter, uh, dismissing him by quipping that Spinoza, in making the universe itself to be God, did in fact deny there was any God. That said, Priestley was a Christian but also a materialist, to the point where Methodists in Leeds, where Priestley was uh, minister to the Mill Hill congregation, uh, penned a hymn with the lyrics, The Unitarian Fiend Expel and chase his doctrine back to hell. <laughs> From that moment on, rational, liberal, enlightenment materialism would always form part of our religious tradition. However, Priestley is not the most famous materialist thinker. Uh, that title, um, I would contest, with some relevance to my upbringing, belongs to Marx. Although his fellow revolutionary Engels um, should really get a lot of the credit here too. Marx and Engels held to a dialectical conception of matter, um, a conception I might be able to go into if there's time later. For now, it will suffice to know that for Marx and Engels, matter is always moving. As Engels says in his book Anti-During, Everything is and is not, for everything is in flux, is constantly changing, constantly coming into being and passing away. This is actually an insight directly inherited from Heraclitus. Let us sing our next hymn. Hymn number 47. God around us, God within us. That is hymn number 47.
and please be seated. Materialism has a lot to teach us about the nature of truth. And truth, I think, especially at the moment, is really something we ought to be concerning ourselves with. Has anyone seen that cartoon on social media that I call the 9-6 cartoon? Um, it features two people with a giant number on the ground. Yeah. Uh, one is standing at one end of the number and saying, NINE! And the other person is standing at the other end of the number and saying, SIX! <laughs> this image is usually accompanied by some sort of caption along the lines of, just because you are right does not mean I am wrong. What I'm about to say might be quite controversial. <laughs> This cartoon really annoys me. <laughs> um, this is the cheapest form of idealism. Um, let us make this clear. Giant numbers don't just fall out of the sky or exist in an isolated vacuum. Um, one of the people in this cartoon is indeed wrong. Um, and the real material world um, could, you know, if this does occur in the real material world, this could be proved. Uh, for instance, the two people in the cartoon could just stop arguing based on unsubstantiated opinions and actually work together to find out if there are any other numbers nearby. <laughs> if this debated number happens to be between a 5 and a 7, or an 8 and a 10, then that would provide a good amount of potential evidence as to what the mystery number actually was. Also, to get a little technical, if these two people and a number were truly in an isolated vacuum, then they would actually be incapable of even forming the concept of a 6 or a 9, as there would be no other numbers that are different to a 9 or a 6 to differentiate a 9 or a 6 from anything else in existence. <laughs> now, I know there's a kernel of truth at the heart of many things I disagree with, and I thus hope that the illustrator of the cartoon was trying to get to the fact that we do need the ability to live peacefully with those who hold contrary, con contrary convic contradictory convictions to ourselves. And that we need to preserve the freedom of individual preference. While that is all true, we must also acknowledge that some truths are non-negotiable and are well worth our time defending. I'm not picking on a single cartoon out of any form of uh, animosity towards the illustrator who created it. I have genuinely no idea who it is. Um, but more so because it represents a very, what I would refer to as a very dangerous uh, postmodern suspicion of objective truth um, in favour of a uh, neoliberal individualistic notion of a marketplace of competing alternative facts. Now, all knowledge we have of the world, we are embodied in, comes from experience, sensation and perception. This is undoubtedly true. Yet, while we may not share the exact same experiences, sensations or perceptions for a whole host of reasons, materialism necessitates that they stem from the same common origin, the material world itself.
Does the tradition of spiritual idealism offer any tools for discerning truth at all? Maybe we should leave it behind us, like our general Baptist ancestors in faith turn their back on full immersion baptism, filling in their baptismal pools in favour of prioritising um, of word over ritual in worship. I don't think so. I've always said that Unitarian, Unitarians have always enjoyed two threads throughout our history. And they enjoy them best when they are plaited together and working off one another. Those two threads are, in my book, spiritual idealism and rational materialism. Unitarians, among many others, have worked hard to create and preserve an environment where ideas can be expressed and challenged, not to score points, but for the mutual benefit of all. Basically, that being a member of a religious community where everyone is obliged to agree with each other is oppressive, uh, counterproductive to one's spiritual development, and very boring. <laughs> I believe that the dynamism of Unitarianism comes from this dialectical relationship, this interpenetration of opposites of spiritual idealism and rational materialism, and I think we can use them together. I'm going to use as an example something that I hope many of us know, hopefully rather well, love. In this specific example, romantic love. In this ultra-specific example, the love I have for my fiancé, Zosh. I'm going to make a statement that I believe to be true. I love Zosh. Let's see how far we can go with probing this claim in a rationalist, materialist way. <laughs> Reasons. I need to give you reasons to back up why I love Zosh. And there should be reasons for romantic love. From sad experience, I know that if you have run out of reasons as to why you romantically love someone, then you are likely to be no longer receiving love but abuse. Fortunately, I could fill a whole dossier of reasons as to why I love Zosh. For now, I'll pick three of them as examples. Um, the way she seems to get me, like no one else in the world that I know. Um, she sometimes knows things about myself before I've even become aware of them. Um, her confidence, um, it's just so darn sexy. Um, <laughs> and three, um, her intelligence and creativity. Um, I really feel like I've shortchanged her greatly by limiting myself to three reasons, but we are pressed for time and I'm sure she'll understand. <laughs> now, say that I sat down and wrote that hypothetical dossier. That I, um, and that I, you know, not only included those three reasons and all the others, um, but that I took the time to collect evidence of each reason 
so that each one could be independently verified by experts. <laughs> Psychologists could observe Zosh and I interacting in a shared space together over a period of time and write down their observations about how she can preempt my behaviour and feelings successfully. Um, they could record the level of confidence she displays just by putting one foot in front of the other despite her visual impairment. Her intelligence um, is easily evidenced, um, at least compared to mine anyway. Um, uh, she would be keen to point out by the fact that she received a higher mark in her undergraduate dissertation than I did in mine. Um, yeah, she doesn't let me forget that. <laughs> Now, you could sit down and read all of this evidence at your leisure uh, and go for it with a fine-tooth comb, but it would be pointless. Um, I wouldn't even bother producing the dossier in the first place. Why? Because even if I convinced you that my reasons were valid, and I probably would, I would know deep down at the end of the process that my love for Zosh was not fully contained by the reasons in that dossier. The proof of this would be that after reading that dossier and agreeing with every point in it, by the end of your reading, you will not love Zosh. The dossier would be missing something quite unquantifiable that forms a small but essential part of love. A leap, a leap of trust, a leap of faith. Call it what you will, but at some point in a relationship, one must take a leap into loving someone. You can know the reasons, and you need the reasons. The reasons can take you to the cliff edge where you need to be. They can even tell you the direction and trajectory to jump. But you still have to make that leap into the unknown. Entering a relationship of love with God, to believe in God, is like this. Look at it another way. God is not a yeti. <laughs> Neither is love. Um, God is not some proposed thing that we can debate the potential existence of in the same way as a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. We cannot debate possible sightings of God fleeing from tree to tree in the pine forests of North America. This is because, like love or justice, uh, God is not a descriptive concept. Um, these are all normative and thus contested concepts. Uh, you will not see them in the same way as you see this lectern or this room. So it means to talk about the existence of God or love is different than to talk about the existence of a humanoid ape. I use the word existence in both cases, but what I mean by that word is vastly different in both. Time for a hymn. <laughs> Hymn number 12, Bread and Wine Are of the Earth. It's hymn number 12.
By the way, why I felt moved to include a communion hymn in this talk would be a great question for that sort of 445 <laughs> Now, as this is a talk from what I've admitted as a free Christian perspective, and that is a free Christian perspective, um, it would be amiss of me not to go back to the Bible somewhere. One of my favourite books in the Hebrew Bible is the book of Exodus. The story of Exodus tells of one of the greatest stories of liberation of all time. The success of the Hebrews in winning their freedom from their oppressors in Egypt. It's probably the founding text of liberation theology. Exodus is as much a useful resource for the oppressed today as it was when it was written. In the Exodus narrative, Moses flees to Midian after killing an Egyptian soldier for striking a Hebrew slave. When Pharaoh finds out about this, he seeks to kill him in revenge. Moses, quite wisely, seeks the relative safety of the wilderness. Moses ends up settling in the land of Medea and, despite having to fight off some shepherds from a well at one point, he has a fairly good time. He finds a wife, has a son, um, and while he has to look after a flock of sheep, seems to live quite contentedly. Then, as she so often does, God gets involved, mixes things up a bit, and makes matters far more complicated. God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush and tells Moses in no uncertain terms that he has decided that Moses needs to leave the safety of Midian and return into the danger zone of Egypt to free his people. Moses, on the other hand, clearly thinks that a shift from shepherd to leader of a liberation struggle is an appalling choice of career move. <laughs> Thus, in the best traditions of the Jewish prophetic tradition, he fights God on this issue. <laughs> However, unlike Jacob, who uh, wrestles with God in Genesis uh, physically and successfully, Moses tries a more argumentative intellectual approach and fails. Um, he is called by God to return. That is the end of it. <laughs> Our story um, for the children earlier featured Milo. Um, as the story of the Phantom Tollbooth is of a journey, um, and the joy of a journey is in the act of journeying rather than where it ends, I feel able to tell you that Milo indeed comes back from the world that he is about to experience beyond the Tollbooth. He has changed in mind but he returns to the world all the same. A little-known Russian radical, um, D.I. Pisarev, once stated that the rift between dreams and reality causes no harm if only the person dreaming believes seriously in his dream. If he attentively observes life, compares his observations with his castles in the air, and if, generally speaking, he works conscientiously for the achievement of his fantasies. If there is some connection between dreams and life, then all is well. 
We are not called by God to retreat permanently into the land of ideals and simply remain there. We may go there for nourishment and to receive wisdom and guidance, but we have to come out and face the music sooner or later. We have to be nurtured by our spirit-filled faith, but but we must never ever be content to merely wallow in it self-servingly. We must not use our religion merely to interpret the world, to negate it. The point is to use our religion to change the world. Oh, the music, the beginning. (laughs) Nearly forgot. Music at the beginning was by um, somebody not known for, as a composer, but uh, as a philosopher, um, Theodore Adorno, um, Marxist philosopher and materialist, um, and evidently sometimes composer, although he hated jazz famously. <laughs> Can't all be perfect. <laughs> the... <laughs> I just included that partially to um, break through one um, particular barrier that I think sometimes comes across when we, um, when idealists encounter materialists, they can see materialists as um, um, seeing sometimes almost like no point in art or not having any creativity and just being scientific. If you enjoy that music and you have that assumption, maybe you should think again. So, in a minute I'm going to lead us into our final hymn. There will be a benediction using some words of a philosopher who, if you weren't satisfied with my attempts to reconcile um, spiritual idealism and rational materialism, then um, you might be inclined to go along with him. Um, Our words of a benediction will be from Tiliard de Chardin. Um, the mystic of matter and then we will descend from that high uh, cultural intellectual pinnacle um, into um, the complete uh, nonsense of uh, consumerist um, materialism in a song that is fun (laughs) let us sing our final hymn hymn number 55 God who fills the universe that is hymn number 55 
Please be seated. So I said our benediction to close our time this morning comes from Tilliard de Chardin in his book Hymn of the Universe. Son of man, bathe yourself in the ocean of matter. Plunge into where it is deepest and most violent. Struggle in its currents and drink its waters. For it cradled your preconscious existence. And it is that ocean that will raise you up to God. Amen. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.